Hi, my friends. We really need your support to keep bringing these wonderful voices to you. If you find joy and solace in the podcast that we create, please consider clicking the button on the right side of the site. You know, that little button that says donate. Thank you for your kindness. Hi, my friends who listen to Future Primitive. Uh, today, it's a true honor to be with John Todd, Ph.D. He has been a pioneer in the field of ecological design and engineering for nearly five decades. He is the founder and president of John Todd Ecological Design. Dr. Todd has degrees in agriculture, parasitology, and tropical medicine from McGill University in Montreal, and a doctorate in fisheries and ethology from the University of Michigan. He is also a professor, and he is the co-founder of New Alchemy Institute, a research center that has done pioneering investigation into organic agriculture, aquaculture, and bio-shelters. I mean, best known for his eco-machines, Greenhouses with tanks filled with a variety of plants and other living organisms capable of turning sewage and wastewater into pure drinking water. I could say a lot about Dr. John Todd, but the most important thing today is that I'm holding in my hands his latest book, called Healing Earth, an ecologist journey of innovation and environmental stewardship. So this is a beautiful book, and it is this little treasure I have here. So welcome, John. Um, it's a great pleasure to be with you, very much so. Thank you. And Thank you. Uh, I do just want to add to your introduction that the book, Healing Earth, was in, in a way an uh, uh, ongoing collaboration with my wife, the writer, Nancy Jack Todd, and she edited it. Edited. Yes. So if the sentences are intact, that's who gets the credit. Huh. Yes, I was, I, I'm going to ask you about her a little further into our conversation. But first, uh, I want to point out that uh, we are speaking at a... Um, I was going to use the word unbelievable because that's how it's 
it's been and it's becoming believable now. And I'd like to know what you think and how you feel about what's happening. Um, you know, there are so many ways to look at it. I, in an odd sense, um, to combat the coronavirus, it requires our you know, rethinking everything, how we spend our time, who we're with, where we go, and why. And, uh, and so as many of us are in isolation, um, we begin to think maybe this might be a, a, a chance to rethink the overall uh, evolution of the human animal and the societies associated with this animal. And uh, so it's tragic. It's terribly tragic. How much it could have been avoided, I don't know. I'm not an epidemiologist. Um, but it, it is literally uh, standing upside down how we impact the world. And what will be very interesting to see, this is from a, a biologic, bi biologist perspective, is as there are fewer planes in the sky and fewer contrails overhead, will, will more sunlight begin to reach the ground in many of the more overcast parts of the world? And will, will life on the earth begin to respond to this jolt, if you will, of new light energy striking the surfaces of the oceans, the lakes, the rivers, and the fields and the forests? So it's also an amazing experiment set against this uh, tragic backdrop of, uh, of a, a major pandemic, one that I don't think we've experienced since uh, the, the flu pandemic of uh, 1918. So I th really think that, that um, there's a lesson in what's going on now and it may take us uh, of many months or a few years to unpack the good out of the suffering. So mm -hmm. let's see what happens. Well, it's very interesting um, since uh, Lovelock uh, yes. saw Gaia as a living being. Um, is it a message from her, if mm. uh, if one subscribes to that uh, to that uh, beautiful manifestation? Yeah. Is it a message from her, and uh, how long does it take for her to realize that we're less assaulting her less? Exactly. It's, that's the big question. You've just honed right in on it. My guess is that uh, there will be a guy in response. And, uh, but I think the attempt to reboot um, the global economy uh, might cut it short in its 
positive reactions. It would be really interesting to see if photosynthesis in places like the Great Lakes or the inshore oceans will will increase and if carbon dioxide will be absorbed by the the uh, plants and microorganisms fast enough to to actually see some detectable change it's a it, it's we we definitely live in interesting times we do we do yeah yeah but and, even, uh, even if a little bit of a reef yeah gets a message of relief yes yes that would be that would be really interesting and it's quite possible I think Jim Lovelock is still alive. He's yeah. he's a hundred and two or something like yeah. that. My <laughs> wife, my wife and I knew him, and he stayed with us here. Oh really? Uh, uh, but uh, I don't know <laughs> what he would be thinking. <laughs> but certainly, he and Lynn Margulis, yes, uh, between the two of them, did. Uh, the sort of symbiotic evolution is just such a wonderful, beautiful, engaging story that has so many, you know, rivulets of tales and uh, and discovery in it. Yes, I, I was fortunate. Uh, we were fortunate to meet Lynn Margulis and fortunate to interview her. Uh, yes, she, yes. <laughs> she was delightfully forthright yes delightfully so really at the, at this moment what i what i what i really want to ask you is uh, speak to us about uh, the state of the the planet and how you see our relationship together because uh, basically i mean the the, the the understanding here is that we're all in relationship, the planet yes. and us, human animals, and you've been really dipping your feet and hands deep into her. And so what do you see, what do you think at this time? You know, um, one of the reasons why I wrote the book, Healing Earth, was to try and explain particularly to newly emerging people conscious of the importance of our relationship with the world and the environment. And the idea was to really to create a, create a selection of stories, you know, real-time stories that would show people that there are so many different ways in their lives, even if they're living in a walk-up apartment in a big city, that they can start to change the course of the, the planet. In other words, the, the goal was to inspire a whole generation to find ways of of being engaged with the stabilizing climate would be just one aspect, but an important one, or a food and climate 
aspect and to sort of really create a whole culture, a whole generation of people who are deeply, deeply engaged. And that, that was the dream. And I was inspired by, um, by the book uh, Sand County Almanac, uh, which was published in 1948 and uh, by Aldo Leopold. Mm-hmm. And here was a book that told a story, in this case of, of a prairie farm, as a kind of a metaphor and an analogy as to how we can take care of the planet as a whole. And it captured the imagination of its period, the post-World War II period, and and out of it, um, the all kinds of positive things happened, like the the you know organizations like the Sierra Club, the Audubon, you know, the, all of these uh, uh, the Soil Conservation Service and so on. All of these things grew out of that one book that inspired at that time a whole generation. Mm-hmm. And that was at a time when people were actually doing a lot of reading. I don't think they read as much now <laughs> as, the, as, as, the, as the Spanish might say, desafortunatamente. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, um, so that I, I try to think, and, and then I'll get back to the bigger in issue. Stories, yes, of course. Uh, is uh, is the um, is because people don't read as much. I had to think of a book that came in short chapters, mm-hmm. and and uh, and I had to think of a book that you know had quote-unquote stories from the field so that it wouldn't seem exotic or remote but possible. Like the, like the child in the beginning staring at two, two streams, yeah. one was sick and ill and the other which was thriving and growing and they were coming from roughly the same area and ending up close to the same area. Just the kind of mystery of how how to piece together a personal understanding of how the world works. And then the other thing we wanted to do was to make it small so it could fit in a pack sack so that it would just be a small paperback. And then the other thing that seemed very, very important is that it give a profound sense of hope about our future. And I, I think that that, because I feel hopeful, despite the fact that I started out as a doom watch scientist, so to speak, um, working amongst other places here in Woods Hole, studying the effects of modern day chemicals on the private lives of fishes, and uh, and uh, just kind of going from there. See, that's the point. This book is so hopeful. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so full of hope. And, and each story is, is a story 
of of completion. Something really happened. That- Something yes, and and I think that there there. Let's say you lived in a city apartment and you had a window box, mm-hmm. and in your little window box, you were growing between petunias, little lettuces, or arugula, something like that. Mm-hmm. And you are, with your little window box, you are, are um, taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Yeah. It's not a very good system to keep it out, but you've started. And then if you put into your little window box say some warm season perennial grasses mm-hmm. like switchgrass, quite a commonly known plant used for energy, fuel and so on. And it's a warm season grass. You put it in that window box. Then all of a sudden you are storing atmospheric carbon. The switchgrasses are taking the light energy transforming it into oxygen and photosynthesis and creating pathways that takes your carbon and uh, that and uh, sequesters it. In other words, locks it up in your box. So your little win- window box now is a tiny ecological engine helping to change the future of the climate to a safer, more healthy place. And, you know, it's, it's such a simple thing, but it's, it's, it's completely analogous to right now I'm involved with a Dutch group working on trying to re- re-green the Sinai Desert. And it's the difference between that window box in the city and regreening the Sinai Desert is a is an issue of scale and an issue of complexity, but they're they're both on the same continuum if they're done correctly. You're sort of this relationship specialist who is bringing the future into the present. Yes, and so you're talking about having a box of future here on yes. your window. And, and you see, people, ecology is not boring. Uh, ecology is, is, is a beautiful, beautiful fairy tale. It is. And you know what ecology is? And this is sort of something that Lynn Margulis taught me mm-hmm. a lot about. Um, she, of course, taught down here where I live for many years, and we were both part of, with my, and my wife as well, of the Lindisfarne Association, which she was very active. The, the, uh, the main thing is that ecology, in a way, is evolution's story in the present. You know, this right. is over right. three billion years of inventing, you know, rejecting, changing, all of the things, because as Lynn taught us, evolution isn't just a Darwinian species evolution. Right. Evolution right. is the relationships between all of the kingdoms of life 
in any given part of the world. And so it's, it's an absolutely exciting starting point for thinking about the future. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's something that is also, you know, very, 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 very moving. And uh, one is tempted to think of the old alchemists and working on transforming base metals into mm-hmm. gold. But they, what they were doing, of course, was a personal transformation. And I love what they called their work. It was, they called it the great work. Yeah. And, and I, th- I think that, I think that every, every, everybody, whatever, whether they're a child or, or 110, um, uh, can get engaged with the, the, the great work and, mm-hmm. and, uh, make the, make the world as I try and indicate, uh, suitable instead of having refugees you have millions of people who are carbon farming and bringing back streams and waters and forests and fields and wildlife um, and feeding themselves and they're they're no longer uh, refugees and uh, and uh, this 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 worldwide movement um, which basically uh, to a large degree, um, started in in Holland, uh, and it's only a few years ago when uh, organizations like uh, Common Land began to say that what we need is millions of people who can grow things in wasted spaces, like deforested landscapes, uh, newly created deserts, you know, all of these things that, that are everywhere in the world that are the sign of our misuse and abuse of, of uh, natural resources. And so now they, they started in Spain just a few years ago, and they create these, they go, in the case of Spain, they go to these very, very ecologically rundown places Mm-hmm. And uh, and working with the local people that are left, and there's not a lot of local people that are left, but there's some, beginning to to use the most wonderful permacultural ideas to begin to uh, you know to to basically reanimate these areas, and of course there's it's also starting in South Africa, it's starting in Western Australia. There's even some of it starting now in the southwestern United States and uh, also in uh, s- several places in South America. It really is, it really is the idea of young people primarily, although it's not restricted to young people, living together. That's why they call them camps. They're not quite villages. Mm-hmm. They'll become villages, but right yeah. now they call them camps. Yeah. To learn these Earth stewardship skills is one of the most, you know, exciting things. And uh, to see what can be done in wasted places is just really remarkable. I learned this very early on because some of the early work I did in ecological design was where wastes were toxic and in some cases even deadly. Uh And try and go in 
and stand and stare at a place. There's a there's the there's the image in the book of the the I think it's called the birth. I don't have the book here in front of me. The uh, you know the the birth of a of a ecological technologies and that horrid pit filled with yes yes. The, 15 of the most toxic materials possible and to go there and then to take that ghastly water and using literally thousands of species of organisms, most about which we know very little to nothing and put them together to organize themselves into new communities that are capable of, uh, digesting deadly materials. And it's, it's just, it's an incredible feeling to be on a site like that, that should be so awful. And to see coming out the coming out of the end of the eco machine, 10 days after it was put in absolutely pure water. And, uh, you realize the kind of, the rejuvenating forces that are extant in nature are really remarkable. And uh, when we set out years after that to clean the oil spills, the, the heavy oil in, uh, in Massachusetts along the Blackstone River, right. just to, to see these toxic heavy oil sludges being brought in to the eco-machine and going through the different stages of the beneficial process and removing the oil. It, uh, what we would like to do and, uh, um, is to take that experiment, which was in the town called Grafton, and extend it to the whole 80 miles along the Blackstone River from central Massachusetts all the way down to the Atlantic coast, entering at Providence, Rhode Island. And uh, it, it starts to, when you're seeing and working with healing ecologies, you can't help but be optimistic. You say, well, if we can do this on a half a mile of, of canals here there's no reason why we couldn't do it on 80 miles of canals <laughs> you know what i mean that kind of feeling of well why not <laughs> it's amazing how um life is speaking to us all the time and what we need is translators like you and janine benius and and lovelock and Lynn Margot, you're translators. You you hear the stories that Gaia is telling, and then you translate them. And also, we we don't have to be incredibly smart. I'll just give you an example. <laughs> That's great. Um, when I started working, which I think is the third chapter of the book, when I started working on that on that site uh-huh. and on Cape Cod. Yes. I uh, I said, I don't know enough to design an ecology 
I just don't know enough. And a, a, a Swedish scientist friend said, you know, how do you know all the pathways and the networks and the feedback loops? And I said, I don't. And I can tell you, I don't think anybody on the planet does. But what we do know is we follow a few simple rules and good things will start to happen. And in the case of that experiment, the first rule was power it by sunlight. Make sure sunshine is what's driving it. And so we had those clear-sided tanks that the light could go in the sides as well as the tongue. And that was the first thing. And then the second thing was um, make sure that at least three, possibly six, wild ecosystems contribute their quote-unquote intelligence into this eco-machine. So we went out and we went to salt marshes and ponds and lakes and streams and wet spots and woods, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and brought back life and put them in the tanks. And then the other thing that was very clear is that we, we needed parent environments, which I mentioned, the salt marsh and so on. But we also needed, and this, this, this knowledge came a little bit later, mm-hmm. we also need representatives of all of the kingdoms of life. They evolve together. They're going to be much more uh, effective if they remain together. In other words, this biodiversity. So we literally had, uh, um, you know, thousands of species from all over the place. And all locally gathered, but I'm just saying from different kinds of environments. And what happened is really kind of uh, remarkable, but it's also very telling. Um, The... uh, um, Uh, Lynn Margulis and her students came to look at life in the tanks. Mm-hmm. And this was her students from the Marine Biological Laboratory. And they, she said, now, look at this and t- describe what you see. And most of the students, because they were really pretty, some of them were pretty well trained, recognized all of the organisms in the tanks. You know, they could tell a protozoan X or a cyanobacteria Y, all of that. They could do that. But what struck them, all of us, was that the communities they were looking at, completely new on Earth. Completely new. They... That life was co-evolving and self-designing, self-organizing in a way that related directly to the task, which is to get rid of the toxic material that were in the waste. Wow. This is amazing. Mysterious, as you Just said. And, yeah. uh, and uh, I don't know how many new environments we've created, uh, but they're always associated with a particular task or a particular challenge. It's amazing that you that you mentioned alchemy because we were watching a, a short video of uh, 
of you with on this farm where uh, the old well water is converted into water that uh, is good for the land. Mm-hmm. And and Jose said that's real gold. <laughs> yes. Well, you know when <laughs> when we started the New Alchemy Institute, there were three of us. There was Nancy Jack Todd, yeah. our wife, yes, and uh, and William McClarney, Bill McClarney, and who was a ichthyologist, fishery biologist, and uh, we we knew we had to create a different kind of institutional structure to look at big big picture problems. We just knew we had to, and other people were coming to the same conclusion uh, within a year or two after we started, um, like David Orr, he went and yes. created Meadow yes. Creek, and Wes Jackson, he left academe and went and created uh, the Land Institute, and Amory Lovins, uh, mm-hmm. he created the Rocky Mountain Institute, and so on. Right, right. Uh, right. There was a feeling that to do <laughs> the great work, you had to have a new kind of uh, milieu, a new kind of uh, community, and a, and, a, and a new kind of. And I, I'm not. I don't mean this in a new age sense, although of course there was some new age sense in it, but just the sense of of people who can work together and self-select in creative ways. And uh, and so the the uh, new alchemy for the years that it that ran, it ended up creating all kinds of other new organizations um, was a very yeasty, wonderful place. And there was a very recently uh, uh, the British publication, The Guardian, did a very extensive piece on the new alchemists uh, and uh, basically asked the question, was theirs the road that wasn't taken that should have been taken. That was it. it just came out of uh, in I think December. Big, big story by the both the Guardian and the Observer shared the project, which is interesting. So I guess I can say, despite the coronavirus, I'm very optimistic about what the potential of what can be done of the potential to stabilized climate you know we are running out of time that is true there's no getting around that and uh, and the the potential to basically uh re-green the earth i even i even have a sort of images of you know very poor peasants around the world who are carbon farming and are being paid for it out of the direct measurements of how much CO2 they're removing from the atmosphere on a given square meter. And uh, so it, it, it could be uh, a worldwide endeavor, especially if it had an uh, economic underpinning. Uh, these farmers obviously don't want to be millionaires, but they'd love to be able to eat and have shelter. Uh-huh. So I, 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 and I really think that that there is a lot of space out there, um, millions and millions of acres. And uh, one of the things that, you know, we're, we're talking about with, with the, the Sinai, I think, is 
Yes. Well, it's it's almost as big as France. That's a lot of land, mostly that has been degraded. But the 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 reason why I'm mentioning Sinai is because it it's large, and it, it was found by uh, scientists at an organization in Holland called the Weathermakers. It was found uh, to um, to be a climate crucible, and uh, and so uh, a couple of colleagues of mine. Uh, uh, T. Svanderhoven and his associates um, studied the last 10,000 years on the Sinai. And uh, 10,000 years ago and 6,000 years ago, they knew from a number of different sources, including the logs of ancient Arab traders, you know, that moved down the the Horn of Africa uh, and then back up to the Middle East, um, that at one time it had been forested. And it, during those periods, that was thousands of years ago, it had the ability through its topography and its vegetation to draw in the monsoon winds, you know, up into Eastern Mediterranean uh, from the Indian Ocean. It was able to create the winds and the uh, conditions to water the Eastern Mediterranean and North Africa and, of course, uh, Middle East with beneficial effects going all the way to India. Now the opposite effect is taking place. It's getting hotter and drier, and its ability to form moisture-laden droplets is is way, way down. And... uh, it no longer has that ability to be the regenerative force. But the weather makers are saying, we can reverse it. You know, these are young, bright, well-educated, smart, and uh, they have a lot of interesting schemes, which I allude to in the last chapter. But I think the most important thing is, is their ability to you know, ask a question, how many salt-loving plants are in the world that can tolerate high salt levels? And the answer is... How did they know to ask the question? Because that's the most important part of it. I think... <laughs> I, I think that they, they... Of course, I was prodding them. Uh, but I think what they realized is that there is one on the on the Mediterranean, on the you know, the uh, uh, western part of the Sinai. There is a a very big lake called Lake Bardawil, and around the time of Moses, it was ninety roughly 90 feet deep, the mm-hmm. lake. Mm-hmm. And if you look at a map, uh, the satellite maps, you will see that the most of the, fully half of the streams and water flows on the Sinai flow into that lake. And today the lake is no longer 90 feet. It is 
three feet, oh. maybe five feet. It's shallow and it's filled with all of the soils, thousands of years of soils from the valleys and the hills of the land to the east. And so this is where the, the, uh, the uh, uh, weather makers get interesting. The, some of them have their background in the dredging business, working for two of the world's largest dredging companies. So one company, a Belgian company, keeps the Suez Canal open for the Egyptians. And, uh, and they said that there is this massive organic depository. Why don't we dredge it out, start slowly, and then learn how to use those sediments to grow life on the land, you know, in the valleys and the slopes to the, off to the east. And, uh, and so at that point, they said, these sediments now are salty. <laughs> and uh, so we started talking about halophyte plants, salt-tolerant plants, which has been an interest of mine for a long time. And uh, and then they had in Holland there is a company that's called the Plant Lab, and it's based in southern Holland uh, in a in an old factory, and inside it are all these little rooms where they can design where they can simulate environmental conditions from many places in the world. So we asked them, would they simulate the conditions of the Sinai? And we, we brought, the weather makers brought the uh, sediments back from Egypt, put them in these little rooms, and then started putting seeds from representative species from the roughly 1,800 species of, of uh, salt-tolerant plants. And some of them are growing, and some of them seem quite happy. Others look pretty miserable. <laughs> they're not sure they're going to make it. But, but it, this, the story of just identifying great swaths of species of plants that, that uh, might grow in these sediments. And, uh, of course, one of the reasons they're planning on dredging is to also create new spaces for the development of aquatic foods, aquatic resources, you know, fish and shellfish and so on and so forth. So it's it's a long, lovely, integrated story. And, of course, it's, it's um, you know, right in the middle of a very dangerous part of the world. Yeah. Um, so it's fascinating. It's so comforting. Your story is so comforting. Yeah. You know what? There was a um, a Dutch diplomat who was at one of our presentations, and she said, "I think one day this will be considered the beginning of a of a terrible peace plan for the Middle East." Yes. So, I hope she's right. <laughs> I don't know, but I sure hope she's right. That's beautiful. It, yeah. Yeah. It's um, so. Yes. 
what I was just saying. So there, there is a lot of ways that that people can become engaged, and I think the idea of a whole generation of people committing themselves to learning earth tending skills, and you know, there's there are a lot of well trained people who could start the training pro programs and do it on a massive scale. It's it's called Healing Earth. <laughs> it's called Healing Earth. How very, very beautiful. And uh, to go around to the beginning, you know, I, I love this phrase of Leonard Cohen so much. There's a crack in everything. That's where the light gets in. And then you saying that at this time of coronavirus, maybe some more sun, sunlight can get in to places yes, that yes. have been starved for it. So yes. maybe there's a gift in the nightmare. Yes. Yeah. Good for Leonard. Yeah. Good for <laughs> Leonard. <laughs> well, I want to yeah. thank you so much. I I loved every moment with you and uh, regeneration stories just make me cry with joy. Okay, so you know what we need to do then, Joanna, is yeah. is get together uh, for more stories and not too long from now. That would be great. And uh, I also wanted to ask you about Nancy Jack Todd before before we close because I would, yes. I would be delighted to talk to you about her. She her background is is primarily literature and history. Very strong sense of social justice. We've been writing books together now for a long time. Uh, but she has one book that I think young people should read. My students at the University of Vermont sure liked it. It's it's called A Safe and Sustainable World. And it was published by uh, Island Press. Okay. And it's the story of, it's the new alchemy story. Uh, both of us being Canadians didn't put a lot of gossip or juicy things in it, but it's a, it's a story of, of, New Alchemy, how it came about, how it operated and worked, and how it became a magnet for people all over the world, and then how it moved out into the world after it was um, disbanded. And it's it's a lovely story. Um, her, her writing is being compared to Rachel Carson and uh, in in the, in the book, and, and so I think that. Um, that it'll be a wonderful interview for us. Yes, it would be a wonderful institute. And also, she does something else that would be a wonderful in, uh, interview. Yes, yeah. Uh, and that is she publishes, and, and I'll send you a copy so you can see it, uh, uh, a publication three times a year. It's called Annals of Earth. <gasps> And she's been publishing it since uh, 1980 or 1981. And so there are lots and lots, three times a year. And it is, it is an, 
ongoing story of people who are making a difference and how they do it and why they do it and how they make it happen. And uh, this particular issue is is ded- dedicated to uh, um, a great friend of ours, the very Reverend James Parks Morton, who was the um, dean of the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York and who was so instrumental in all of our lives. Um, and we also, she's also reproducing in that the the article um, written in the Guardian magazine. We got their permission to, to, to reprint it, which was wonderful. So that people who don't know the Guardian or the Observer will have a chance to have a chance to see it. And there's 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 a lot of lot of interesting conversations in and around her work and what she's doing. And uh, and uh, I I would definitely recommend that that uh, the three of you uh, get together and plot and scheme. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Well. A big, big hug to you, and thank you so much for your presence. Well, you're more than welcome.